clicking, and thank you for listening to the Police One podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley, retired law enforcement officer from San Francisco PD, retired as the Deputy Chief of Patrol. I currently lecture in Criminal Justice Studies at San Francisco State University. Jim, as we near the end of the year here, um, and we continue our wrap-up coverage and looking back at uh, the, the the year that was 2015, um, we also have to remember to remain vigilant in uh, the final days of, of the year here uh, as the Policing Matters uh, podcast airs, that um, this this month can be particularly deadly, uh, can be particularly difficult. Uh, obviously, the sun is going down earlier. Obviously, the, their road conditions in many parts of the country are uh, significantly worse. Um, you know, there, there are there are people out there who are suicidal and want to uh, get into a, a SBC. You know, at the holidays. Um, so, you know, what are, what are some of your thoughts on, on uh, for our officers out there to, to to remain safe and get into 2016 safely? Sure. I, you know, the the holidays, the end of the year, um, tend to really bring out a lot of emotion and. Um, it's an accumulation of the year to some people where uh, they, they tend to get um, uh, to a point of desperation almost. I mean, you, me- you mentioned suicidal uh, people. Um, the holidays really bring out strange behavior. We talk about the, um, the increase in domestic violence around the holidays. Uh, you know, the kids are out of school, so they're around more. And... Um, so people are people are at a bit of wit's end, but for law enforcement officers, um, encountering people with bizarre behavior, uh, going to to situations, if if there's is such a thing, be on uh, an increased uh, alert these days, uh, considering what's going on in the world. Um, take a little bit of extra care. Slow down a little bit in driving to your destination to make sure you get to your destination. Uh, like you said, Doug, the it's getting dark by 5 p.m. here on the West Coast. Uh, it's wet, rainy, snowy. Uh, the conditions just make matters even worse. Uh, people are trying to get to their destinations uh, quicker in these hazardous conditions. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit, and in anticipation of, of our discussion, I looked at the uh, National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund dot uh, org website and I was looking I was curious um, on causes of death um, on law enforcement officers and it always seems to be a, a close uh, race if you will between um, uh, being shot by a firearm or uh, being involved in a uh, traffic collision fatality and once again um, over a 10-year span uh, auto crash is uh, number two at 414 total over the years from 20, 2005 to 2015. And then uh, officers shot, um, the number was 539 over that same time period. But if you add in uh, the number of officers' um, fatalities struck by vehicles, that's another 134. So that raises the auto-related uh, deaths at, at well over 500. So. I'd say be especially careful on the road, be especially careful of, of moving vehicles, and, um, and take care of yourself during, during this season and the year end. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a tactical tip um, 
in which I, I repeated something my dad taught me when I was growing up, which is uh, drive to the conditions, not to the way you've been conditioned. And <laughs> Good um, words. Yeah, my, my dad had a lot of those. And, uh, and it stuck with me, obviously. You know, so when you, and in that tactical tip uh, on Police One, it, it employs a, a video, a horrific video of a car um, basically disintegrating in a, in a crash in a snowstorm. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a police car, but I wanted to have the illustration in there of you know to visualize what bad things can happen if you're if you're exceeding the abilities of the vehicle or yourself in you know snow ice. You know the, the, where I grew up in New York, we had something called black ice. The road does not appear in any way to have any ice on it at all. It just vanishes into the into the pavement. And that stuff takes cars off the road all the time. Sure. And um, and it's you know it's just trees. I hate it when, as Travis Yates says, trees and phone po phone poles are killing too many of our cops in single vehicle collisions. When you're go if you're running code three to a destination, make sure you're doing it in a fashion that you get to your destination, just as you just said, because you're not any good to anybody if you don't get there. Right. You know. Yeah. And I you, I mean, you, you touched on some really good points. Uh, sometimes you don't even have to be moving. Uh, there, there was a December, probably 15 years back, when I remember um, I was positioned to uh, ride up and tow a vehicle out of a driveway request by a, a, a citizen there. And while I'm uh, writing up the paperwork, I get hit from behind by an individual intoxicated going over 40 miles an hour ram straight into my um, stopped vehicle so uh, situational awareness really was the the rule of the day then it should have been for me i should have positioned my vehicle out of the roadway entirely and um, you know we set up we 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 create tactics uh, based on a rational what would a rational individual do mm. And with uh, drunk drivers out on the road, people under the influence of narcotics, or just inattention to driving, somebody mm -hmm. you know, thinking that their their text message was really important at that time, can really contribute to a horrific accident. Yeah. Well, as, as you rightly pointed out, the holidays things get a little bit nutty. Make sure um, that while you're out there, uh, take take proper time and care for yourself. Off duty, you know, do some stuff that you like to do. Um, visit with family, whatever it is you do uh, in terms of celebrating any, any kind of religious holiday. Um, you know, enjoy that. Make sure that you don't uh, bring the job to um, Christmas dinner or, or Hanukkah celebration or whatever it is that uh, you find to be uh, your holiday season. Uh, and make sure that uh, you take good care of yourself and your family. And uh, like, like I said, enter 2016 um, healthy and happy so you could be uh, safer and successful on the street. Well said. I echo those remarks. Uh, take care of yourself. Take care. Have a great holiday and uh, get some exercise. Sounds good to me. Hello, and thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. And Jim and I are here for the end of year, end of 2015 podcast. We're going to recap a couple of uh, trends and issues that have taken place over the year. Jim, the one I think we should probably begin with is, um, is something we began to see. Well, we've been seeing it for years, but increasingly so over the course of this year. Uh, the notion of deadly hesitation, where, um, for example, back in April, 
there was an officer in Ohio who was encountering what, what appeared to be a um, suicidal subject, uh, but someone who was also under suspicion, I think it was for murder, and um, he, he, he allowed the subject to continue to approach him and approach him and approach him, and he was backpedaling away from the subject and eventually, actually, gun drawn, fell down onto his, his hindquarters, and the subject uh, turned around and w went away, apparently because he decided, well, this cop doesn't have it, he's not going to kill me today. Um, in August, uh, of course, the most brutal attack on a police officer we've seen in a while, where an Alabama cop uh, was beaten nearly to death with his own service pistol because he told CNN later he, quote, didn't want to be in the media. Uh, well, he, en he ended up in the media quite a lot anyway. Um, but he, he very nearly met his end, uh, and it's really just good fortune that he survived the encounter. Um, you know, and this, again, I'd said this is not really a new phenomenon, it's just increased this year. You know, we've had um, in Georgia, I think it was in, in 1998, Kyle Dinkheller um, had a, a subject pull a rifle out of his car and point it at, at the officer, at the deputy or uh, trooper, I think it was actually. and. I think it was about 20 or so times that he had uh, he could be heard on the dash cam saying, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun, right up until the point where the, the offender killed him. And, you know, so this this deadly hesitation thing that we've seen across the country, it's it's concerning. It's an, it's an officer safety issue. You know, what's your take on it, Jim? Well, I think you're you're dead on with this, uh, this point, uh, Doug, with with the calls from the media, from advocates and even as high as the Oval Office, the president and the attorney generals, uh, both Mr. Holder and... Um, uh, Gosh, I don't remember her name either. <laughs> uh, Loretta, Loretta, uh, Lynch. Lynch. Loretta, yeah, Loretta Loretta Lynch. Lynch. Sorry about that. Uh, calling for uh, new tactics, uh, de-escalation tactics, uh, a tactical retreat, if you will. Um, they're calling for law enforcement to break down, back down, retreat, um, tactical withdrawal, uh, tactical restraint, and, and other phrases to say, don't engage a suspect regardless of the issue. Um, I think it's dangerous. I think it puts uh, hesitation and doubt in the mind of police officers. Uh, you know, our academies are anywhere from 20 to 35 weeks. The police academies, law enforcement training, just drums into law enforcement officers how to respond to a threat. In California, 835 and 835A of the Penal Code lays it out and says that the officers shall use reasonable force necessary to overcome resistance, to protect themselves, to protect others. Uh, it talks that they shall not be, uh, it, that it's not necessary to retreat mm -hmm. and that they shall not be de deemed an aggressor in those situations. So. I think the laws are clear, the policy and trainings are clear. I think when you put this kind of hesitation in the minds of police officers, and, and I've heard uh, you know, people, individuals deny that the media or advocates or uh, what's been said in, in social media, uh, that it has no effect on them, but I'm sure it does. I'm sure it's, it's human nature to back down from, from such criticism. And uh, I think any officer who would change from their training to ad hoc uh, improvisational tactics is just, they're, they're backing into a black hole. Uh, when you do that, you 
you relieve yourself of all the protections that you are afforded when you follow training. Uh, you're open to civil liability, criminal liability. Um, you're more likely to get injured. The suspect's more likely to get injured. And there's a possibility of fatal injuries for both if you make something up on the fly so it doesn't look as bad as a tactical um, maneuver. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, to one of your points there where some have said, well, this isn't the result of, um, you know, protests or media coverage of, of incidents. Well, you know, the Alabama cop, the Birmingham cop, flat out said that he was influenced by not wanting to be on the news media, not wanting to be um, considered to be either a racist, a racist or a fascist or both. And, uh, you know, I think that, what, you know, on Police One, we're seeing in the comments section all the time officers saying very similar things that one cop it just broke my heart when I read beneath one of our articles, you know, this is the reason I'm getting out of police work. And this is the reason I'm going to pursue another career. He'd only been on the job five years. Yeah, that's and he's 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 probably a damn good cop, but he's making a decision to not only hesitate to act, but he's actually we're losing that great officer, you know, to a different profession. And, you know, this, it, it, it absolutely, in, to my mind, does come from the media coverage of, of, of incidents across the country and officers feeling like they will be labeled a racist, a fascist, or both if they do what they were trained to do. And that's just a terrible, terrible shame. No, I, I agree with you. And I think, I think in the national sense of criminal justice, you see the pendulum swinging again. And... For anybody to quit in this time, I think it's, it's a mistake because you'll see the pendulum swing back the other way. In, in this case, um, early 80s, uh, we saw crime really on the rise, really get out of control with uh, the crack epidemic and um, anti-war protests and things like that, um, uh, rise of movements. And uh, you saw the national reaction in stiffer sentencing, mm -hmm. use a gun, go to prison, uh, gun restrictions, uh, mandatory minimum sentencing, three strikes, things like that. The war on drugs was at its highest during those times. So now you've seen, maybe because of the over-incarceration levels or over-population of incarceration levels, mm -hmm. sometimes in some states, 300 over their capacity, 300% over their capacity. Um, here in California, the governor assigned three judges to a panel to say, hey, fix this problem. Mm -hmm. And the result was uh, Assembly Bill 109, AB 109. And then last year in California, uh, Prop 47, Proposition 47 was voted in by California voters who said, okay, maybe we shouldn't be keeping uh, drug offenders and property crime offenders in prison with the violent offenders. And mm -hmm. so let's reduce the population. This year, over 10,000 prisoners in state prison were eligible for release. Uh, this year, federally, um, the, the federal government released or, or has the potential to re release over 6,000 federal, mostly drug-related offenses mm -hmm. um, from prison, from federal prison. And I think the harm in that swing in policy is there was no additional job training. There was no public housing assistance. There, were, there was no uh, education before they got out. It was uh, in November we voted for it. In January, the doors opened and people walked out. You're free to go, unleashed back into, into society, probably to reoffend. Right. And, and I think one of the flaws in, in, in both systems was they didn't account for 
the history of the offender. It was the last offense of record. So if I'm a rapist, um, armed robber, uh, violent offender, but my last commitment was for a property burglary. crime, burglary, car theft, something along those lines, then I'm eligible for release. And I think the public certainly doesn't read the, the fine print when they walk into the ballot box. When you see uh, something called safe neighborhoods, safe schools, if I haven't read about it, I'm voting on it. I'm voting for that. You yeah, want safe yeah. community, safe schools, don't you? Yeah, and, and that, that does get back to, you know, the, the public are influenced by the media in such a great way. And, and it, it, the, the public are, that are going out to these protests um, that, that, they're, that are voting in these voting booths, they're operating on very, very little information uh, with regard to both of those bills and what police work is really all about. You know, so, you know, kind of getting back to, you know, I want to I end this segment at least uh, with some thoughts on, you know, how, what can be done about this deadly hesitation thing? Because in 2015, we definitely saw it begin to get to be, um, to have real momentum, and it's a negative momentum. So um, I just want to step back and, and point to an article I wrote a, a couple of months ago, how the Alabama attack on a cop is an alarm bell against deadly hesitation. You can Google that. And um, in it, I, I outline 10 steps, five of which I'll try and summarize them here as, as kind of five. And it really boils down to um, police officers who are committing this deadly hesitation thing. And there's other ways of being hesitant. You know, there's, 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 I won't affect that traffic stop, even though I just saw a guy blow a red, because I don't know what's going to happen and all that. We'll get into that actually further uh, in the program. But it comes down to confidence. They have to have confidence in their training um, and, and have confidence in their skills. So uh, trainers have to, to redouble their efforts and officers themselves have to, to work harder to know for sure that they've got the skills to do what needs to be done, whether it's with the firearm or with uh, going hands-on or, or an ECD, taser-type device. Um, they also have to feel confident in knowing for sure Graham v. Connor and what constitutes reasonable use of force. And so those those talking points and teaching points need to be gone over, over, and over again in roll call. Um, and then I think that it's useful to think about what's important now. Brian Willis explained to me what's important now. He actually got it from Coach Lou Holtz. It's, um, it's the, the world's most important question. If you're thinking about what's happening after an incident, you're not thinking about what's happening during the incident. You first, you have to survive an incident to get sued, you know? You have to survive an incident to get prosecuted. So if you're involved in a potentially deadly encounter, you got to do what needs to get done at that moment. And then I think there's an element that goes to leadership. Um, police leaders at every level, but certainly and most importantly at the highest level, chiefs and sheriffs, have to be very proactive about saying to the public and to the police, look, I am going to investigate whatever's happened to the fullest extent. We're going to take all necessary steps, but I'm not going to throw an officer under the bus for political expediency. I'm not going to, and what I will do in the process of this investigation is educate the public about where we're at, and I will talk with my officers as well, keeping, you know, the home fires burning about where we're at with the investigation. There's certainly things that can be shared outside, or rather inside of the agency as opposed to outside, so those two sets of um, data points are going to be different, but um, until such time as there is some sort of an action taken or not, you know, the found to be reasonable. And then um, finally... It goes to the education of the public, which we kind of got to before. We have to figure out a way in law enforcement to get the best of the brightest in uh, the training world, in the police world, to be 
better about educating the public about what reasonable force is, about what the case Graham v. Connor is, because as you mentioned with AB 109, they're voting for something called, you know, something warm and fuzzy, you know, but they're not understanding the real issues with it. So they're, they're, they're criticizing police on the basis of very little, if not accurate information, some of it's totally inaccurate information. And as a consequence, we have this deadly hesitation. Right. No, I think, I think it's important for law enforcement officers to go back, take a look at their policies, look at their training regarding use of force, know about uh, Graham versus Connor, know about the reasonableness standard, the totality of the circumstances with which you're faced, um, consider the threat, the weapons, the crime that occurred, the present and future threat, and any resistance. and, and the force necessary to overcome that resistance. And I think you're pretty safe. I think if you stick to the, the training, and, and when you talk about uh, bringing the trainers back to the table, I think, um, I think it really is important to educate the public on what is approved and what would be uh, likely to get the individual or the, the officer uh, injured if you mm. try some technique. I've heard uh, you know uh, this range of uh, suggestions from from non-police people who say why don't the police just tackle the guy with the knife or the machete machete why don't they just all jump them at the same time uh, why don't they grab a long stick from somewhere and hit them with it and uh, I think the trainers need to uh, broaden the scope of the the types of encounters what types of weapons uh, keep it safe Bottom line, keep it safe for the officer, keep it safe for the, in, the individual as much as possible. But, um, and there are some techniques that we have that we use and we call them awful but lawful, mm -hmm. right? You've seen some, some situations, uh, a hair takedown or a leg sweep where an individual goes back on their head. And hey, in the heat of battle, right, the object, objective is to win. Mm -hmm. But sometimes those things look awful mm -hmm. with the the ever-present uh, cameras, the ubiquitous cameras and media um, attention, you're going to see that on a, a social media site or, or a live TV or, or the news. So uh, I think we have to take a look at some of the tactics we use to keep them safe, but let's, let's, let's keep in mind that people are looking at it as well. Yeah, I think we can agree that force never looks pretty uh, and this isn't an MMA fight or uh, something that's a sport that's regulated and has rules. There are no rules on the street for the bad guy. The officers obviously have rules, regulations, policies, procedures, and training. And so we have to we have to do our part on, on our end here at Police One and, and, and elsewhere to to educate the public and citizens academies, to invite the, the media in to do use of force scenario training and get the word out because that's really where the, the breakdown lies. Once that pendulum, as you said, swings to the other side and um, you know there are other elements to this we'll get get to in, in a couple minutes after a break but you know there, there are elements to this where the pendulum will swing back into our favor again and there are also elements to the way in which this deadly hesitation can lead into a cascade effect for society and we'll get to that next Hello, and thank you for clicking once again. We're back. I'm Doug. I am Jim Dudley. 
And we're here um, talking about um, trends we've seen in the year 2015. Um, you know, of course, earlier we had a discussion around deadly hesitation. A while back, I wrote an article uh, called, um, well, I don't remember precisely, but in it is the, is the term, in the title is, is the term, the cascade effect, a deadly hesitation and the cascade effect. The, um, the consequence of, of hesitation, as we discussed in the first segment, um, is that you know you had things like the end of stop and frisk in New York City, which were, you know, let's let's be clear, you know, those were perfectly legal stops by uh, by reckoning of the Supreme Court. Those were Terry stops, nothing more, nothing less. Now, those stops uh, have ended, and although no empirical evidence exists as of yet, I think a, an argument can be made that we're um, kind of this depolicing. Um, in, in cities like Baltimore, New York, and, and other places, have led to an emboldened criminal um, community, and you know, they will at some point begin to uh, commit further crimes knowing that they uh, can act with impunity, and uh, will, there will be no consequence for them. You know, there, there are some agencies that have said you know, no uh, traffic stops for, for equipment violations, and you know, so these are codified policy-wide um, de-policing that, that's taking place in the country. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very slippery slope because once you have emboldened criminals, you have criminals will have, as a consequence of their actions, victims. And those victims are going to be ordinary, law-abiding citizens of the United States of America. You're going to have people who are robbed and raped and murdered and, uh, um, and assaulted because these criminals know that there will be, if not no consequences, diminished consequences for their actions. Uh, Jim, what's your, what's your take? Well, I see de-policing as a direct result of the negative scrutiny from media and, and advocate groups. Um, you know, the old adage of, if it bleeds, it leads. You see these um, critical incidents on the, the lead of the news story, uh, police are constantly being scrutinized over their reaction in, in certain situations. And uh, emotions usually high, uh, they get the emotionally charged uh, uh, friend or family member who talks about how uh, unfair it is. And um, we know that usually uh, these incidents come from some sort of police activity that's observed. So a wanted subject, a call for service, a car stop, things like that. And the officers merely responding, things escalate, and the, the rest turns out to be the media story. So in light of that, in light of the negative scrutiny, uh, you see police officers less and less getting out of their cars, doing proactive uh, take-ons, uh, Terry versus Ohio type investigations. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you mentioned it, we saw it in New York after the two police officers were killed last year. And uh, the, the street take-ons, the low-level uh, quality of life citations, if you will, were not being issued. And um, that was seen across the board as uh, the police saying, okay, enough, if we're going to be scrutinized and, and thrown under the bus for every possible um, encounter on the street, we're, we're not going to do it. And I think you play into the hands of the advocates who say, yeah, we, we don't want a police department. We want a fire department. Stay in your police stations. We will call you when something happens. And of course, the negative side to that is we end up being totally reactive 
We go there to take the police report after the injury, the loss, the broken into car, the stolen car, the kidnapping, the burglary, the store robbery, what have you. So uh, it, it, it makes for reactive policing, which uh, just adds to the body count of victims. Yeah, and, and, you, and you hit it the nail on the head. And you know, I wanna make sure that we mention um, that some people are calling this the Ferguson effect. And I think that's accurate because everything that you just said about, you know, they're, they're responding to a call of an, a criminal activity. Well, that's exactly what Darren Wilson was doing. You know, he was headed away from another call. He, he, he encounters these people on the street. Whether or not he heard the radio traffic is kind of irrelevant here. You know, he, he heard that there was a you know, break in not too far. Whether or not he thought these two guys were the, were the assailants is kind of irrelevant. He had an encounter with two people breaking the law, walking down the middle of the street, you know, it, and those guys did that as an intimidation uh, tactic. That's what they do in those neighborhoods. And he was intervening in criminal activity and telling those guys to get out of the street. Of course, he probably should have done it from outside the car, but, you know, that's we, we have the benefit of hindsight 2020. But, you know, these encounters... Um, they're important because they're, they're investigative in nature. You know, when you approach the guy standing on the corner who you've arrested three times before because he's a drug dealer and he's been known to have uh, some form of weaponry, well, he's ba obviously back at it if he's standing on that drug corner again. Are you going to allow that neighborhood to deteriorate into, you know, a place where kids are unsafe and people can't feel like they can go down the street without being, you know, at least in the way of some drug deal gone bad? Right. You're, you're allowing... Um, you know, kind of the degradation of real good society and if you all you're doing is the firefighter thing and coming out really you're not a police officer anymore you're a record keeper you know if you're not intervening in, in criminal activity and, and, and interdicting criminal activity all you're doing is taking reports where does the crime stop you know right, right. there was an, a woman from Minnesota who wrote an op-ed in one of their local papers back in I want to say it was May or something like that I can't recall but she said we should have a world without police altogether completely without police so I wrote a response. I never write responses to these things, but I wrote, here's what the world without police would look like. And it, at the bottom of the article, I quote Thomas Hobbes. It would be nasty, brutish, and short. You'd have emboldened criminals. You'd have citizens who would be victimized. And you will have, you know, potentially in some places, total mayhem. You know, effectively, just like that movie that came out where everyone had a, you know, a free pass to commit any criminal activity at any time. It's Mad Max, you know. And that's, we don't want a country like that. Right, yeah. Bring out the anarchy. I think you, you point out um, the Ferguson effect, and I think one of the biggest problems with Ferguson from the contribution to what we saw nationally was that there was no immediate response from law enforcement officials or the city government to say, this is our version of what happened. The investigation is ongoing. Forensic evidence will be reviewed, and we will have a finding for you in a short time. Instead, there was complete silence and uh, there was a story generated that we found out to be not true right. down the road, but probably months later. So, but in that time, it took a hold of a large percentage of the American psyche to say, here you had a police officer aiming a firearm 30 feet down the street at an individual with his hands raised. Well, we know from forensic evidence that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And I've read articles that say that if the police had done one of these uh, retreating tactics, maybe the individual would, individual, um, would still be alive today, but 
you know, I ask when we talk about use of force in the classroom, I ask uh, students, if you are a law enforcement officer and someone is straddling you, punching you in the face, how many times do you get struck before you respond with force greater than what they're using? And a lot of, a lot of the students say none. I wouldn't wait to get hit in the yeah, face. Because the very next one could be your lights out. And right. then they have access to your gun. There's always one gun in an encounter. It's always there because it's, there's one on an officer's belt. At least one. At least one. Right. You know. So, I mean, if you get knocked unconscious like that cop in, uh, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama did not too long ago, you that could be the end of days for you. Right. So, so and since then, we've seen uh, at least one police chief who said, I don't like the numbers. I'm ordering all my police officers, uh, I think this was in the Midwest somewhere, chief tells all of his officers, do not pull anyone over for uh, equipment violations for traffic stops. Uh, I think that's a problem. It's absolutely a problem. Uh, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that Timothy McVeigh w was apprehended at a traffic stop. You know, he was originally brought in because he had uh, had some sort of uh, equipment malfunction or something on his car. I can't remember precisely what it was. But because the officer, or the trooper involved, needed to get a judge's sort of documentation, McVeigh was in overnight. And over the, the overnight period of time, it was discovered that he was the guy responsible for killing all of those people in Oklahoma City at the Murrow Building. Right. So, you know, the, that, that this depolicing thing is happening has far-reaching consequences because Timothy McVeigh, had he gotten away from that traffic stop or had that traffic stop never been affected, would probably have had the, the means and the motive to commit another act of mayhem. And this is some, and at a time like now where we have potentially lurking on our shores or within our borders, people who will commit things like the attack in Southern California, San Bernardino, you know, we're talking about being kind of right at the tip of the spear of, of counterterrorism on the street. So it, these these things, can, we can't allow the trend of depolicing to continue. And I think that, you know, with the approaching deadline for the givebacks on the 1033 program beginning to happen, you know, we saw in San Bernardino just last week that the safety equipment that those officers had to have on scene to deal with those two terrorists, um, had they not had those Bearcats and, and the other tactical equipment, those, they don't want tracked equipment anymore, right? Well, that piece of gear we saw from the helicopter is potentially susceptible to be given back if it wasn't purchased outright by the department. If it was part of the 1033 program, those cops won't have that again uh, uh, down the road. And that's an unacceptable consequence of this depolicing thing. And, you know, we, hopefully we can have some sense of, of sanity and readdress that issue because you know, one of the give back things is a 50 cal. Well, if you have a, a standoff situation with someone with a lot of ha hostages, 50 cal is a really good sure. choice uh, to, to try and solve that problem. If you have vehicles like the Bearcats, you know, taken away from you or similar type of equipment taken away from you, um, there's no going back to painting a bread truck black and calling it tactical because right. it's, they'll turn it to Swiss cheese. No, you're absolutely so right. So it's, 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 it's society-wide we have to address this. I think it especially hurts smaller departments with smaller budgets that don't have the, the financial uh, means to purchase uh, good quality sniper rifles or um, tactical equipment. For larger cities, um, I can tell you right now, San Francisco probably would not have a Marine unit, boats on the water, if not for the 1033 program. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I know a lot of departments that have greatly enhanced their response capabilities directly due to the 1033 program. Yeah, I think nationwide, you know, we have to have we have to have large police organizations, and I think Police One should be part of this 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 effort. The ICP, um, the Fraternal Order for Police, local police um, advocate groups, uh, pro police advocate groups. Um, we really have to readdress a lot of this stuff that's going on with the depolicing. Everything from the Terry stops being uh, um, discontinued in New York City to you know individual officers electing themselves to just sort of go from call to call to call to call and not affect you know any kind of proactive policing, not do any kind of investigative work on the street, because where we are going, it truly I believe if this continues, this trend continues, we we're go we're going to have. We're, our society will suffer, and we will have more victims of crime. We will have emboldened criminals, and it's just it, it makes it makes us on this side shake our heads, thinking, "What are the what are the people who are complaining about all of this stuff? What do they really want? Because what they're going to get is going to be is going to be bad for them. You, you know, where a lot of these crimes are being committed, they're being committed oftentimes in in kind of low income areas. You know, they're right. you know, but it's universal. They're, People are getting broken into in mansions. People are, you know, if you have emboldened criminals and because of a depoliced, you know, agency, it's not good for us. Yeah, and I think that I think the depolicing phenomenon has largely come from self-selecting. You've had officers mm -hmm. make a, a conscious decision to say, "I'm not getting out of the radio car," but now I think the first shot has been fired with this chief saying, "Don't get out of your cars. Don't pull these cars over." And if, if that's going to be the mantra across the nation, I haven't, I haven't yet heard it from any of the major organizations, PERF, IACP, major city chiefs, uh, places like that, or organizations like that. I have not heard the formal announcement to say, stop getting out of your cars. And when you do, I think that's when all the dominoes right. fall. Right, and, and that, that's where I think what we need to do is, is work with those organizations to come out on the opposite side of that, say, look, this depolicing thing must end. No matter how we do it, we have to work to educate the public about what we're doing. But when 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 police officers engage in in, in interviews, um, even just citizen contacts that lead to the you know the acquisition of some more intelligence about this you know the neighborhood, what's going on, you know that's the way in which society is protected from crime from happening, as opposed to as you'd said earlier. The after effect of the crime has already happened. The call is made to nine one one, and they've just become record keepers and not cops. Right, and I think uh, demystifying uh, law enforcement tactics and and policies is really needed by those organizations to say this is why police do what they do. So um, you have to talk about what a, how a Terry stop the articulation of things needed before you make a stop rather than an arbitrary right. stop. So I think those things need to be explained to the public. But I mean, I can't tell you as a line officer, as a sergeant, as a lieutenant, as a captain, how many times I saw really great work by proactive cops who pull over the car that's driving five miles in a 35 mile limit, that's driving with their headlights off. Um, things like that where you find guns, you find masks, you find retaliation shooters going through a neighborhood to kill someone. And so if, if depolicing goes in the direction where cops aren't pulling over those suspicious vehicles, um, 
again, the victims, the, the, the general at-large community suffers. Well, well, hopefully in 2016, we'll address this in a more um, effective manner. We're up on time, Jim, as we always seem to be. We'll be back and actually talk about some of the, um, the general public and some of the things that we saw them do over the course of the last year. See you in a bit. Hello and thank you and welcome back to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. Uh, Jim, the, um, you know, we've been talking a lot uh, in this end of year podcast about uh, a couple of you know, negative, really kind of troubling things. I think that it's um, appropriate for us to end this podcast and end the year uh, recognizing something positive that uh, I've observed in the course of the last uh, you know, 8, 10, 12 months, a, a significant number of people who are, unlike what's being covered in the media with all of the anti-cop violence and rhetoric, um, a, a significant number of people who are different from that, and they're actually coming out in vocal support of law enforcement. In a very brief glance at some of the pages that I like on Facebook, I noticed Blue Lives Matter, Thank a police officer, stand up America and support our police. Thank you, NYPD, pro-police rally. And there are probably dozens more of these pro-police um, groups uh, on Facebook. And I didn't even look at Twitter, but I'm sure that they're there. Um, you know, and, and just watching from some of the news coverage, you know, oftentimes uh, these news agencies are covering all of the negative stuff, but they occasionally will have a story. For example, when Deputy Goforth was murdered in the parking lot in the Houston area. Thousands of people came out, um, and, and the news cameras came to, to observe them, uh, holding signs that said, Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, and we support you and we see you. Um, in July, when I attended the, uh, the funeral for uh, Sergeant Scott Lunger, uh, the Hayward police officer who was shot and killed here locally in the Bay Area, thousands of people in, the, in Oracle Arena in the cheap seats uh, came out. Just They took time from their jobs and their daily lives you know, to honor an officer who was, uh, who was killed. And, you know, unfortunately, I think altogether too often these shows of support happen uh, following tragedy. Um, but increasingly, like in Chicago, we see whole neighborhoods tying uh, blue ribbons to the, to the trees in the neighborhood. And, you know, other, other little acts uh, of, of thanks and recognition. And, um, you know, I, I, I was curious to see how widespread this was. So a little while back, a um, couple of weeks, I posted a poll in Police One uh, asking, have you had a citizen come up and say hi to you, say thank you to you, uh, thank you for what you do to you? And one of the choices for answers was yes, and pretty recently, too. And 83% of, uh, of officers uh, who responded chose that answer. So I think it's significant. I, you, maybe some of these folks don't go around holding big signs, but you know they do show their one-on-one -on -one support or, or have find ways to be supportive of law enforcement. What's your, what's your take on, uh, on this trend? No, I, I believe, as you do, that there is a silent majority out there that do support the police. I, I do believe that um, they don't always show it because it's not so fashionable. I do believe that in times of tragedy, we sometimes see an outpouring of sympathy and empathy from the, the general public. Um, we saw it with uh, locally uh, funerals for um, officers killed in the line of duty, Jim Caput uh, in New York. We saw um, Officer Lewin Ramos 
uh, and the huge outpouring of uh, support from the community as well as elected officials in New York after that tragedy. So I, I think you see it then. I think the the persistent support isn't always there because it's not always fashionable. It's it's not always socially acceptable in some uh, areas. But um, I think. I think the natural reaction, the human reaction by uh, law enforcement officers is to recoil from the, the heat, the, the fire, and to say, okay, we're gonna stay in our cars. We just talked about de-policing, and why keep putting yourself uh, into the criticism? Well, there's a good reason. I mean, that's our, our sworn duty. That's what you took the oath for. You signed up for the job, and I think um, dedicated people will continue to get out of cars, that they will certainly stop when they see something wrong, that they will engage what they know to be uh, potentially harmful or criminal conduct. And um, I mean, that I see it, I see it. I, I've, I, I just mentioned to you that um, as a young police officer, I often heard, um, you know, parents of small children threatening that if you don't do X, Y, Z, that the, the policeman over there is going to put you in jail. And I think that's something that we need to address. Uh, I never let it go by. I'd always make an effort, and I know several other officers would too, to go to the child and say, hey, I'm, I'm a police officer. She's only joking or he's only joking. Uh, we will come whenever you need us. That's what we're there for. And uh, I think that's important to tell kids, and I think that it's important for the public to know. And it's not a new idea, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, it, it may seem a little maudlin, but uh, a quote that stuck with me through the years in law enforcement was uh, from our um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, past president of the United States and past commissioner of the NYPD, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, in his um, speech, The Citizenship in a Republic, he talks about the man in the arena. And I always equate it to um, your role as a law enforcement officer. And in response to the critics that constantly throw out uh, the negative criticism. And, and if I may, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And to uh, all you law enforcement officers out there who are listening to this podcast, um, we send you our best at the end of the year and keep up the good work and be safe out there. Jim, I could think of no better way to end this Police One podcast and end the year uh, with our podcast series, Policing Matters. Um, have a happy holidays um, to you and to everyone out there listening. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, be safe. And uh, we'll see you again here at Policing Matters next year.